The world lost a wonderful person recently. Dan Neese was loved by all of us in the entertainment industry. He worked tirelessly and with a great attitude. Ask Dan what is most important, and he would say, I work for the script and the director. Words have been hard to find right now. He was a friend. But I wanted to share this interview I did with him back in July of 2019 in the hopes that you will find the love in it and that it may help you to savor every moment of your lives because every day counts and the friends you leave behind will remember you for how you made them feel and in Dan's case also what you learned from them. Cinematographer Dan Neese worked with some of the world's most iconic directors, including David Lynch, Wes Craven, Quentin Tarantino, Joel Schumacher. But did you know that he was an award-winning musician? That he comes from a very small town in the American South? That he worked on more than one movie simultaneously, very often, traveling across the country to meet deadlines with no sleep? And he also talks about some of his favorite gear. Mostly... It helps all of us to reminisce on how important our friends are in our lives. And I hope you will find this inspiring and that you will take it into your day today and think about who is important to you. Thanks for listening to OWC Radio. We value you and we welcome you. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. I am speaking today with Dan Neese, who is a longtime Steadicam operator and now a cinematographer. We call them DPs in our business. And Dan, I'm so happy to talk to you on the air because you're just a rarity in this town and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, we have so much to talk about. Let's let's just start almost at the beginning when you were a little boy you know I like asking people what they liked to do when they were five six seven years old what were you like as a little boy and what was life for you growing up I, I grew up in the small town of Blackville South Carolina it was it, was, it had a population of about 2,000 people and surrounded by swamps and alligators and and it's 10 miles from Barnwell South Carolina where James Brown was born and 14 miles on the other side of that is a little town called Allendale where Jasper Johns grew up Wow. So, um, and this, the, the, I think what really happened in the area, people are saying this must have been something in the water, but I think really what happens is it's so darn boring down there that if you have a creative urge, you've got to figure out a way to get it out or you're going to go nuts. You need time to be creative. And I think in a busy life in the cities, we don't often have time. I, I totally agree with you. I think some of my most Im- wonderful memories are escaping when I was a little girl from my house and climbing into an apple tree to write poetry and just think about the meaning of life. So I think when you're in a small town, that's that's what happens, right? That's great. It's really like there's, you know, there's not too much trouble you can get into because even if you go out in the woods and get lost, lost the dog knows the way home. So, <laughs> and I was always sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, you know, so you just follow the dog out of the swamp, and you're 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 back you're back in in your little town, you know. And um, and and I grew up from a very young age. But when when I was a baby, my mother would take me and put me in the playpen. But rather than turn on the television set, she'd put on classical music on the radio. I mean, or on the record player. Mm. And so I know all of the melodies um, from all the classics of, of uh, classical music. 
So that that was kind of an interesting way. It helped my brain develop musically early. And then that took me in a musical direction for a while. And then in working as a camera operator or a steady cam operator, the, the music helped define beats of a scene. Mm-hmm. So you'd have a, a, a movies are interesting. They have a beginning, a middle, an end, loud parts, soft parts, fast parts, slow parts, just like a piece of music. Mm-hmm. And, um, so when people would have me shoot music videos or do music scenes in movies or things like that, I, I was very attuned. I knew when the, when the downbeat was, I knew where the camera needed to be at a certain point. And, um, it really helped me. And, and it's, it's the kind of thing that you never thought you'd, you'd, uh, use in a million years. Uh, the other one was when I took typing in high school, I said, I'm never going to use this. And I spend hours on the computer every day. So <laughs> I, I was uh, when I was in the seventh grade. I won a medal for playing overture Royka on the oboe, and um, then I. But I would bounce around in the band from oboe to saxophone to to uh, some of the horns to some of the drums to. It, it, it was a very uh, 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 fluid and fascinating thing for me. And we had pianos in the house, and I could kind of poke on those. You know, I, I was as a kid, I was pretty lucky that I could pick up almost any instrument and get some sort of musical sound out of it. I, I still have some some instruments and things, and I, I dabble in it still. But I mean, I mainly concentrate on on being a director of photography. Um, but it, again, that that sort of upbringing, it, bringing when you're young, that pre-wires your brain to have different to think in different ways than than just the 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 normal, uh, regimented ways of thought. It, it connects different synapses in your brain because mm-hmm. musically it's, it's, you know, your, your brain, when you're a youngster, like three, four, five years old, two years old, one year old, your brain is a recorder and it's just sucking in everything it can get. And um, that's why you don't use too much profanity around little kids because they'll remember that, you know, but it's, 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 it's every kind of input you can get. Your brain is programming itself. And, um, then when you get to be our age now, you know, you got a lot of stuff in there. So every once in a while you forget something. But <laughs> I was talking to one of my friends and I said, you know, it's, it's not as easy to learn as when you're a little kid. And he said, well, your brain's full. You, you, you filled your brain full of stuff, you know. <laughs> I mean, a lot, a lot of times now, though, if you get into situations where you're working really, really hard over and over many hours, your brain goes on sort of automatic and you don't even have to think a thought through. It comes automatically out of your head that you need to do this and this and this. And, and it becomes like an automated function in a way. And, um, but you have to be careful of that and override it because you don't want to be doing the same thing over and over and over because you want to keep creating things. And, and I, I tell people a lot of times, if you have a creative mind, you have to keep it busy because like in between jobs, if you're not working, your mind's still going to be creative. It's just, it'll start creating negative things instead of positive things. So you always have to keep it occupied and keep good things going through your head because you you don't want it to turn on you, you know? Yeah. So how long did you live in this small town before you left? Uh, until, I was, until I was about 17 or 18 years old, and then I went to the University of South Carolina. And originally, See, I come from a family of, of doctors for hundreds of years. My, my grandfather was a doctor. My father was a doctor. My little brother is a doctor. My mother was a pharmacist. You know, I, I didn't want to be a doctor. I was the one who had to go wash the blood off the front porch with, with the water hose when people come to the house after hours, you know. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and it wasn't really the blood that I didn't, it, it was just my mind was clicking away. Mm-hmm. And it still does. Every once in a while, I'll start thinking about something creative. I'll go to sleep and in the middle of the night, I'll pop open and it'll still be going. You know, it's like, it's doing its own thing. I can't really, 
it's, it's like a uh, well, your mind is a computer. You know, it's, it's a it's a, a biological computer, and it's going to run programs when you're asleep. It's dreams. It's doing its maintenance. It's setting itself up for the next day. Mm-hmm. And and whether you have things that you have to do the next day, whether you have trauma that you have to wash out of there, you know, whatever you've got going on, your 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 brain is going to um is going to deal with that in, in the way that it knows how to do. And um, that's, you know, when you go to sleep, that's why you need to sleep because your brain needs time to do maintenance, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like defragmenting your hard drive almost in your sleep. Yeah, I, I agree. Sometimes when I'm stuck, I'll, I'll just stop. And then uh, when I wake up, the answer's there. So, you know, you do chug mm-hmm. at night. And creativity, I don't know that we can control the muse it just, you know, she's there when we need her, when we don't want her, she's there, when we do want her, sometimes mm-hmm. she's there, like she just comes at the craziest times. Were you, did, were you uh, into still photography at all when you were in high school? You were studying music. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, 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 I was, I did a lot of still photography. We had these things called Polaroid cameras, which mm-hmm. I, I don't think many people have anymore, you know, but. That was like it was fun to take a picture with that and then watch it appear before your eyes. And um, the first ones, when the picture would come out of the camera, you had to peel it apart, and then you had another little thing of uh, with a, a wiper on it. And you had to wipe on the um, the Polaroid image to fix it, or it would go. It wouldn't stop developing, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, but then we had a lot of film cameras. I took when I was in college. I took hundreds of still pictures. But what really got me in the in the movie direction was when I was 13 years old. My mother bought a Super 8 camera, and I started filming everything. And it, 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 I learned immediately what worked and what didn't with that camera because it didn't have a reflex viewfinder; it had a parallax viewfinder. So I wasn't actually looking through the taken lens. So the first few films, when I got close-ups, I, they were they were not framed properly because the, you weren't looking through the lens. And so I kind of figured that out. And and that was back when film was cheap. You could get a um, a roll of Super 8 with processing included for $3. Hmm. So, uh, which, you know, nowadays $3 back then was like $30 now. So it wasn't that cheap, but it's, 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 it was still something that you could do. And you got like, Oh, I forget two and a half minutes worth of film on a cartridge. So if you planned your, your, your things out, right, you could do pretty interesting things and you could do film or animations or, and, um, and one of the, you know, some of the first things I started doing were, were anim- I became fascinated with animation and um, I started doing a lot of animated things. Then, then it was, uh, you know, chasing the, the animals around the house or the family or, or <laughs> putting a little boat in the swimming pool and pretending I was in the middle of World War II or some kind of, you know, all the silly things you do when you're a youngster. So. Of course. And especially in a small town, you're trying to amuse yourself because otherwise you're going to be really bored because there's nothing going on. Do you have those films? Do you still have them? I think they may be in, in the house in South Carolina somewhere, some of that stuff. Um, I probably should go try to save them before everything gets destroyed and transfer them over to, to another medium so yeah. we can watch them. Yeah, well, also that the, the film deteriorates after a while. I know I've worked on some retrospective kind of things for you know, for clients, and some of the older film is so fragile, you can't even put it through the projector because uh, it's deteriorating. You need to save the films. Well, I got, I got to save them, you know. I'm, well, what I used to do, too, was when I was in, in school, I'd t- get Super 8 cartridges, and I'd leave them on the dash of the car, I'd throw them up under the seat, and ride around all summer, and then take them out and shoot them, and they got really interesting. 
because the 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 radiation from the sun or the heat or it would make you get like really giant sized grains and and um, or big globs of stuff on the film when it when you develop it and so it wouldn't wouldn't look like they wanted it to to look and but I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those mistakes are some of the best things, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I mean, you you get happy accidents that happen and and um, I'm. I, I would go out and shoot things. I remember one time we had an assignment to go out in a junkyard and shoot different things. And I shot this bolt that was sticking out of a piece of metal somewhere. And somehow I didn't set the camera right. And it was like five stops underexposed on, on slide film, which is like the kiss of death. But then I, <laughs> the guy had it developed. And it was really interesting looking because it looked like this sort of dark monster coming out of the, the, the blackness. And um, so that, that sort of gave me some ideas. And... Um, I tend to um, embrace those ideas and think outside, you know, differently than, than other people think when I do things sometimes. Because to me, the, the ordinary is kind of boring, and I want to do something different. Do people ever say to you, you need to look at this person's work and that person's work and that person's work before you start directing or producing or filming or being a DP? What do you say to them when they tell you that? I say, go away. <laughs> I am so glad you said that, because I really believe that creative people need to have confidence in their own muse, in their own creativity. You need to listen to that voice. And I think that's why your work is so good, um, because you have that combination of being able to listen to your own voice, but then working with other people and keeping them happy. It's difficult mm-hmm. to do. It's really difficult to do. Um, it, it, it's very it's very difficult. And, you know, it. it, it it's, 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 you have to balance a lot of personalities when you're working on the set and you, and you have to do things in a way that you make every person on the set happy and still get done what you need to get done to, to satisfy the, the needs of the script because everything comes down to the script. The, you read the script. I mean, I've read so many scripts now when I read a script, I watch the movie in my head as I read the script. Mm-hmm. I already know what the movie, at least in my mind is, is, is formulating to be. And then when I finally meet with the director after I've read the script, I'm like, well, you know, I don't know how you see this, but when I read the script, I saw this, and I saw these images here and this here and this here and this here, and this is what the, the script told me it needed to be or the movie needed to be. And sometimes we'll agree and sometimes we'll disagree, but it's a starting point for us to have the conversation about where we're going to go with the film and what the film is going to um, eventually become. And that that's incredibly important because what 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 you have to realize is when you start making a film everybody has to be making the same movie you can't have somebody be making one movie over here and another movie over there i mean they all have to be coming together for a, a common purpose in a with a common vision so that you accomplish what the director wants to see out of that script because it and, and essentially it's the director's movie and you're there to help him or her um bring that to fruition to the best of your ability. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to back in the late seventies. You're working on your master's in uh, media arts, right? You're at university of South South Carolina. And then when did you, when did you start shooting news? Because see, I think news is a great training ground for several reasons, but when did you start working in news? When, when I was in graduate school, uh-huh. when I was in graduate school at WIS Television, 
in, in Columbia, South Carolina. It's the NBC affiliate. Mm-hmm. And um, I was what they called a news trainee. So I would be in, I'd, I'd, in the morning I'd go to my classes. In the afternoon I was a graduate teaching assistant in charge of the Oxbury Animation Stand. And in the evening, about 6 o'clock, I would go to the news, the news station, uh, get in my little van with a dish on top, and, she, and go with the reporters out until about midnight or one in the morning, and then come home and get back up about six and go back and get ready for class. And um, so it was a pretty full schedule. Um, but and we had it was back when Iran had the hostages. It, it was it, you know so we went to a lot of hostage rallies. I, I got to shoot interviews with Count Basie and John Connolly, who was in mm-hmm. the car with with JFK when he was shot. John actually got shot as well, sitting beside him, and. Um, and so it was a pretty fascinating time for me. And that was back when you had a separate tape recorder, what we called a, a porta pack mm-hmm. that used three-quarter inch tape. We had cameras that were tube cameras. So if you pointed them anything bright too long, it would burn the tube. So you had to be really careful of those. Mm-hmm. And then, so you'd carry each one of those things were about 40 pounds. Then you had two battery belts. You had a sun gun and you had a uh, Electric Voice 635 mic on a fairly long cable for the reporter, and you're carrying all that around. It was as heavy as carrying a steady cam, and we'd be going running around carrying all this stuff. And it was uh, and going to school board meetings or, or protest or whatever needed to be uh, done. So it, it, and it, I had a a microwave dish on top of the van. They told us every time we turned it on, we lost a kid. Oh, because of because of the microwave uh, transmitters, you know, I mean, they, they, it wasn't very clean transmission back then. So, you know, it was, it, <laughs> it was dangerous. It was, uh, let's get well, into what we'll, we'll talk offline about 5g. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. I, you know, I, I carried those battery bricks around too. Actually it took me many years to throw them away because I just, there was mm-hmm. so much, uh, so many memories <laughs> <laughs> with that equipment, right? Um, but I think, oh, what, yeah. did, what did you learn doing news that you think you carried into the next phase? Well, you learn when somebody's out there blowing somebody away, you can't ask them to do it twice. you got to get it the first time. You know, it's like if, if you see something, and, we, you know, you'd see really horrific things, and, and it would be like, well, you, got, you know, I'd go out in the van, you know, whoever was with me before or, or whoever had the van previously, two of the lights would burn out, and I'd only have one light left. Mm. And, 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 you know, you do with what you got, you know, and in the news business, if you could see it, it was good. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't have to be artistic. It just had to be documented. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it, it's some of the best training you can ever have for the film business. Cause you, you learn that you can't fool around and you don't have time to get second chances. You better get it right the first time or you may not get another chance. And a lot of times that's true in the film business too. There may only be one good take right? and you better get it. You know, I mean, I did, I did two TV movies with Anne Bancroft, and when that, that she wasn't a big woman, but whenever she turned it on, you just prayed you were in the right spot to catch it because it was going to come out of her where you, whether you were ready or not. You know, mm. she's a very was a very strong actress. Mar- Marsha Gay Harden's the same way. She's got very a strong. Uh, she emotes very strongly too. So, I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of great performances through my lens. <laughs> it's it, it's 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 it's. It's like having the the best seat in the house at a wonderful play every day of your life. Do you feel like you look at life through your lens, even when you're not shooting? I know, I know, I do. I, I, and I have people tell me, put when I'm not working, I always have a camera. Do you do that? 
Well, I, I carry my iPhone around with me because, you know, I saw a quote from Annie Leibovitz one time, and it was it was, and and somebody asked her what's the what's the uh, the best camera available now for a beginning photographer for a beginning photographer, and she said an iPhone, and because uh, you always and you the best camera that you can have is the one you have with you at the time you see the shot. So mm-hmm. whether you have it on an iPhone or an SLR or a, or a super Panavision 70, you know, you, you, you can just, you see the image, the image is in your head, you capture that image. And then that's the image that you have. When I went to, I've been to Italy and France a few times over the last few years and I'd send back pictures, and people say, these pictures are beautiful. What you take them with? And when I tell them it was an iPhone, they can't believe it. And sometimes people put, like, little teary faces and stuff, and I'm like, you didn't feel that way before I told you it was an iPhone. If I never told them it was with an iPhone, they never would have realized what I took it with, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, it's, it, it's not the size of the wrench. It's the person behind it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So... so if you if if you, if you're if in your mind's eye you see something and whatever tool you have with you allows you to capture that then you've done well. <laughs> That's awesome. You are doing what you are supposed to do. Doesn't it feel like that? Does it feel like life has brought you to where you want to be? Well, I, I mean, I lived in that little small town, and I I thought you know making movies was impossible, so I would try it so I could fail and come home and get a real job like raising pigs. But <laughs> but. Uh, but you know it worked, and I'm still here, and I'm living in Los Angeles, and I'm doing what I want to do, and and I'm I'm really pretty happy with that. Yeah, I pinch myself every day because it's like I'm really getting to do this. This is this is amazing to me. It's 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 fascinating and amazing, and and I still love it and love to do it uh, whenever I get the chance. So it's it's. I mean, I've heard several people say this quote, but if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life, and that's. That's kind of the way I look at it. I just want to keep on doing it as long as I can, I'm allowed to do it. And um, I think they'll put me in the coffin and I'll be hanging out with one arm with a camera sticking out on the way. That'll be the hardest thing for the undertaker to get that last arm in the, in the box. You know? <laughs> You'll be lying there going, wait a minute, it's not, I can't shoot. It's totally dark in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Move the light a little bit this way, you know. <laughs> can you leave a, a crack? People crying. Or, yeah, I need yeah. a crack. I need a crack through the coffin so I can shoot the crowd. Oh, my goodness. Talk to me about uh, your, your, when you went into learning Steadicam, because Garrett Brown's a wonderful person. What was it like studying under him? Well, he, Garen is like still uh, one of my dearest friends to this day. And we, we, we met in December 17th, 1982 in Miami. And that's where I went to the, to the, to the Steadicam class that Garrett and Toby Phillips and Randy Nolan taught me how to do Steadicam. And I was in there with, with, um, my other two, uh, uh, fellow students that really did well were a guy from Paris named Jacques Mange, uh, and, and a guy from Florida named Robert Uland. And both of them, sadly, are passed away now. But mm. they both did some amazing work. Jacques went back to Paris and became the Steadicam guy in Paris for many, many years. And Bob was, uh, he always lived in Florida, but he traveled all around um, and did a lot of major movies. And um, so it, it's, it's been a, a, a great run. Garrett is like a, undeniably a genius. And not only did he invent the Steadicam, but he invented the Skycam. And, all, you know, whenever you watch the Olympics, 
and you see the, the people dive off of the high dive, and the mm-hmm. camera follows them down and goes into the water. Mm-hmm. That's one of Garrett's cameras. Hmm. I think, and then hmm. there's one like when they when they run obstacles and do the races. The, the cameras that fly along with the with the runners as they're going along. That's one of Garrett's cameras. Then the sky cam, where the camera comes from above on cables. That's one of Garrett's cameras. And uh, the other thing that Garrett's done that, that I'm not sure how many people know this. But he's also the voice of Molson Golden in all the, the beer commercials. I didn't know that. Voice. I did yeah. not know that. Oh, my mm-hmm. goodness. That's Garrett Brown. <laughs> and then he started out as a folk singer. So oh. so do you guys ever play music together? No, no, we, we, we haven't. But, um, you know, he had an album out. I think you can find it if you dig around. Um, I forgot the name of the his group, but uh, if you look for Garrett Brown, you should you should be able to find it. And um, but he 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 lives now and has always lived in Philadelphia. He never left Philadelphia and still went around and 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 did movies all over the world. You know? So he's he he's, he's and just a dear friend, a brilliant man. You know, somebody that you're you're very happy to know and love. You know. Mm-hmm. So you were you were learning about the Steadicam. Do you remember the first thing you shot using the Steadicam? I did. Well, I I, I went and um, I went through the school, and that was nineteen eighty in the nineteen eighty two, and I got a call from um, Earl Owensby Studios in Shelby, North Carolina, and because um, uh, an equipment dealer that I knew that I bought a few cameras and stuff from in Charlotte had. Um, gotten a steady cam from John Barry group out in Australia and um, they got it down to Myrtle Beach and they were doing a, a movie called Chain Gang and it was in 3D and they didn't know how to work with steady cam and didn't know how to adjust it and um, so they said well the, my friend said uh, I know this guy who has uh, just come out of the school we should bring him down here so I went down there and the steady cam had been um, they had a 51-pound arm that had been modified with super long screws in it, and they had a little light Aeroflex camera on it. And 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 they um, but the the arm was cranked up so high that the the arm was standing straight up in the air, and so it was had way too much spring tension on it for the um, for the camera that was on the Steadicam. But at the time, the factory didn't make adjustable arms, so I looked at it. And I saw it was a 51-pound arm, which was for the Airy 35BL, which was much heavier. And I started taking the arm apart because I've always liked to take things apart. <laughs> and um, my mother would come in, and I'd, she'd give me a radio, and I'd take the radio apart and put it back together, and it would still work. I'd have a handful of parts left over, but it still worked. So it was like, <laughs> you you'd, know, that's how you learn, you know. You'd have parts left over, and it still worked? I remember my parents walked in on me when I lived in France, and I was on the hardwood floor, and I had taken apart the telephone. And I had parts mm-hmm. everywhere, because back then the telephones <laughs> were really interesting. They were horrified. Yeah. Anyway, so you started <laughs> you started taking this arm apart. Was the production horrified? Were they scared? No, no, no. They, they, they were out doing other things. They didn't even know I was doing it, but I was bound and determined to get to the base of what was going on. Mm-hmm. And so I pulled the covers off the springs on the arm, and I noticed that the Australians had put like really long screws in, in, the, um, in the arm for the spring adjustments. And so I took those screws, and I dialed them down and dialed them down and dialed them down. And then um, until I got the arm where it should rest for the particular camera that we had. 
And um, so I, I got that going. And then the other thing I had to do was I had to make a, uh, a plate for the top, for the camera at top, because the 3D lens was so big and heavy that it made the Steadicam front heavy. And I didn't have enough adjustment to get it further back. So we made that plate. Or actually, maybe I just taped a battery on the, I taped an extra battery on the back of the Steadicam to balance it out. Anyway, I got it balanced out to where it worked like it should. And then all of a sudden I was like the guy, you know, <laughs> and, um, I did about six movies with Earl, Earl studio. And then after that, um, Dino DeLaurentis had opened the studio in Wilmington, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And so I started hitting them up and I had, i put together a reel, which is basically, um, me chasing my little brother around the house in Columbia, South Carolina, around the yard and crawling over a fence and, the camera just followed him wherever he went. And, and, um, and I sent that reel up to Dino De Laurentiis to the, actually to the Joe Dunn cameras up there and they watched it and they started telling everybody about it. And I didn't get a cat's eye and I didn't get Firestarter, but there was this movie called blue velvet that, um, they called me and they said, do you want to do this movie called blue velvet? And I said, sure. And I was, <laughs> I was on one of the Owens movies at the time and I had a travel day going between Shelby and, and Hilton Head Island where we were going to shoot. And they were shooting Blue Velvet in Wilmington. And so I just swung through Wilmington on the travel day, spent the night there, and I said, well, who's shooting this thing? And, and I, I, I pulled the, the, the call sheet out, and it was David Lynch. And I, <laughs> I was like, you know, we'd all seen Dune, and we're, my right. friend and I in South Carolina, and we said, if there's anybody we could work with in this business, it would be David Lynch. And he'd be the, the guy, you know. And so I didn't sleep at all at night. And I stood in front of the mirror looking at myself saying, you can do this, you can do this, you know. <laughs> so, so then we, we get there, and, and, uh, and it's, a, it's a big uh, 35 BL camera with a, about a seven-pound anamorphic lens on it. And I get it all set up. I'd bought the Steadicam that we'd used on Chain Gang earlier. And so I had the, enough arm to hold it all. But I only had two shots in the movie. One was um, uh, Kyle McLaughlin walking up with the bug sprayer up to Dorothy Valen's apartment. And then the other one was he comes busting out of the doorway, and he and Laura Dern run back down the stairs talking about the key that he's stolen so he can get back into Dorothy's apartment later. And those were my two shots in Blue Velvet. Well, I shoot those, and I go down to um, Hilton Head, and I shoot down there. And then they call me, they track me down in Hilton Head, and they say, you got to come back. And I, I said, what? And they said, we had some kind of lens problem. You know, you got to come back. It wasn't anything to do with you, but, you know, we got to shoot everything all over again. Oh, my goodness. It just happened to be on the travel day that I was going back up to, um, to uh, Shelby for a night shoot. So I drove to Wilmington. I reshot all those shots, threw the stuff in the car, drove from one side of North Carolina to the other, landed in Shelby, and then did a whole night shoot, stayed up all night. So that was a long day. No kidding. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but it led to an ongoing relationship with David Lynch to this day. And um, because we, we did Blue Velvet and Wild and Heart and Twin Peaks, then Lost Highway, or, or actually Firewalk with Me, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, plus some music video and, and uh, commercial work. And so all of that... Uh, just all happened because of a travel day and, and a, a few shots. And um, actually, the, the new Criterion Blue Velvet Disc that just came out has 
the, the footage, David found the underexposed footage in a warehouse in Seattle. How it got up there, we don't know. But it's got those uh, lost shots in it. Hmm. And then it's also got a documentary of us making Blue Velvet, um, which is really strange to see myself from 1985 with my little steady cam, you know. <laughs> and then, and then um, there's uh, an interview that we did a, uh, several years ago um, that it's, it's a series of interviews called, uh, what is it? Uh, it's by Benedict Fancy, a, a filmmaker up in, in Wilmington, where we went back to the locations where we did Blue Velvet and got on that stairwell and actually um, walked through and talked about how we did it, and this is where we did this and that. And and um, it's pretty fascinating. So if you get that Criterion disc, you can have all this. And um, so that, that was that was kind of fun. And, and that got me from doing the, the first Shelby, uh, uh, Earl Owensby movies in Shelby. We blew everything up. And we'd shoot somebody with a machine gun. We wouldn't shoot them once. We'd put 100 bullet hits on them. And they'd die <laughs> in slow motion for like five minutes. And blood would go everywhere. <laughs> oh, come on. Blowing things up is so much fun. <laughs> oh, we, we, yeah, it is. We had a 40 tractor trailer full of bombs, you know. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so you went we, from we, blowing we things up hmm? to, you went from blowing things up to the very introspective, psychological, thriller kind of stuff that David Lynch was doing at the time. It's kind of a little, yeah. a little shift, wasn't it? Yes, but it was fascinating. And, 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 you know, David and I have gotten along really well for years because we just clicked. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it got to the point, there was, like on Wild at Heart, there's a scene where Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern go, dancing at an old Palomino nightclub, which used to be out in the valley. Mm-hmm. And um, we were, were filming there, and and it's where Nicolas Cage, and the punk comes up and tries to dance with Laura Dern, and Nicolas Cage, and he says, you got a stupid-looking jacket. And Nicolas Cage says, this is a snakeskin jacket, a symbol of my individuality and personal freedom. <laughs> and um, then they, then, then they uh, have a little bit of a fight, and then Nicolas Cage and Laura dance. But it's like that scene... The, the direction I got was to go out there and get it. And so I went and shot it. And then I came back after I ran out of film and, and David said, what'd you get? And I said, well, I did this, 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 this. I got these parts of the scene. Okay. Go out and get what you didn't get before. Oh, nice. And he would, he, he just trusted me. And I knew, you know, we, we, we developed a rapport where we sort of knew what he, I knew what he wanted and I just would do it, you know? And, um, well, I mean, it, it was basically, I shot one side of the scene, which was, would be, uh, Laura's side with the heavy, with this, you know, speed metal band in the background. And then I turned around and did Nicholas's side and it, it would be like floating into overs, floating and doing, uh, wider shots and, and moving around the camera. I'd constantly just move in from a close up to a wide shot to other things. I mean, the whole scene is basically a couple of steady cam shots with maybe a high angle and a low angle uh, from stationary cameras later on. But um, that that was pretty much it. And we, we really developed a rapport. And um, then let's see. So we did that. Then we did Twin Peaks, and, and that was on, that was 90 and 91. And did I was on every episode of that except for the pilot, I think. And then we did Firewalk With Me, where we actually went up to Seattle and shot the whole film up there. And then, um, and then, uh, after that it was lost highway. 
I don't know how and to then, keep track of everything. You have so many credits. <laughs> I, I, I have to look at IMDb to see what I've done because I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what is David doing now? What is? Are you guys still working on things together now? I, I didn't work on the new Twin Peaks. They had a whole new crew. Um, but uh, David is, has got the David Lynch Foundation now, which is for uh, – it originally – uh, was formed to help kids learn through meditation, and then it evolved into like veterans, army ve- or, or military veterans, to help them overcome PTSD. And it's kind of developing this massive worldwide organization now for for uh, TM. And so he's pretty busy with that. And he also, uh, I mean, David's foundation or his his what he started out with was being a painter, and so he he paints a lot as well. So he's He's a, he's a pretty uh, prolific individual. Um, so, uh, I mean, his paintings are massive, and, and they're very interesting, and they're, you can immediately look at one and tell it's David's painting. It's nobody else does paintings like David. So it, that's, that's really... Um, uh, I love going to his shows when he has openings because it's, mm-hmm. I always see interest in new things. And he, and he makes furniture and does other things too, but... Um, I mean, in addition to being a master filmmaker. So in the days when you were using the Steadicam, you, I mean, and you did that for many years, I think it was just recently mm-hmm. that you sort of dialed that down a little bit, right? But you yeah, were, you, yeah, you were there in the heyday. I mean, the Steadicam was still fairly new, uh, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, you, you could- you could count everybody on two hands that was doing it when I started. Mm-hmm. What did you? What was your style back then that gave you some notoriety? What caused people to kind of notice your work? What do you th- looking back? Well, I went to the school in Miami, and then I went back to South Carolina for five years by myself and developed my bad habits. And <laughs> <laughs> but my my style was always a little different than all the other Steadicam operators. I mean, people notice it, and it's. Where some of them were more rock solid and dolly like I was always the the camera always had a bit of a a motion and a float to it that was was it became a character which I mean a lot of us when we would film things the the steady cam could be either an observer or a participant so it it, it, it and it kind of can kind of float back and forth between those things so um, my style was always a little more flowing and 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 Although I could be precise, uh, sometimes I wasn't precise on purpose, or, or I would put the camera where it needed to be in other ways. So, would I be it's, right in I mean, saying that in a lot of the scenes, your camera was the POV of the character because it feels alive when I look at, you know, when I look at uh, some of the clips you've put up of your work, it breathes. Mm-hmm. Well, it breathes. I mean, the, the, yeah. Well, the opening of, of Scream with Drew Barrymore, where I, sh- I shot that. Um, that's always very, um, I did a few things. I mean, it's, it's a fairly solid take, but I did things like when I'd push in her on, on her, when she would, when she'd get the weird phone calls and things, I'd just twist the camera just ever so slightly when the guy started threatening her, when it started getting strange. And, um, and then we chased her around the house and out the front door. And there was a lot of different things that went on. Uh, Wes Craven saw, said the next day after he'd seen the dailies, it was the best first day's dailies he'd ever had on any movie. Oh, that's um, awesome. Wes that's was awesome. a lovely man. I did I did two movies with him. The uh, Scream and then the people under the stairs. And um but I you know, I 
I was constantly working on different movies. So sometimes I'd do three movies in three different towns in a week. And so I'd do part of Scream and then I'd go and do, do another movie in another town, another movie in another town. I'd wake up in a hotel room. I wouldn't know where I was. And I'd go look out the window. I still wouldn't know where I was. I'd have to find a phone book to know what town I was in. <laughs> well, you must have been exhausted. I don't know. I don't know how you did it all. But it, you're it was, still doing it. it. Was, yeah, it was, it, was, it was really pretty crazy. There, there was a lot of times where I spent my, my life in super shuttles and on airplanes and in hotel rooms. And um, I would, I would, it was not unusual for me to lose five pounds a day. Uh, carrying this weight around because I'd sometimes I carry 18 for 18 hours a day. I carry a hundred pounds around, you know, so, um, and not all of it would be walking. Some of you running, going up and down stairs, jumping on and off of cranes, mounted to vehicles. The, um, opening of, of lost highway is the title sequence is me hanging off the front of a camera car in low mode with an Airy three with a, with a Panavision anamorphic about two inches off the road. Um, going 35, well, we're going 35 miles an hour in 24 degree weather and the camera's running six frames a second. So it's the equivalent of 140 miles an hour. And we had to hang out there for 16 minutes in the windshield for, um, so we'd have the full roll of film to put the titles on because we needed the full four minute roll Jeez. for all the uh, main titles of the movie. And, um, I had on two pairs of long johns, all my street clothes, a snowmobile suit, a ski mask, two pairs of gloves. And by the end of the run, um, I could only open one eye. I couldn't feel my fingers and I'd slobbered all over my face. But it was worth it because the the camera looks very good, you know, and, and David still tells the story about how cold it was and how long I hung out there. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't come back in. You were frozen. <laughs> I, I was I was there. I was, and I had to be very careful because if, if we hit a bump and I let the camera go down further than the two inches above the pavement, it would hit the pavement and then the whole camera would be sucked up under the camera car and be destroyed. So it was it was quite a an undertaking, you know. No pressure. So no, no pressure. No, well, no, you 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 just do what you got to do. It's what's got to be done. It's like. Uh, the opening a wild at heart. I'm running up and down the stairs with Nicholas Cage, and he has the fight with the black guy, and beats his head into the terrazzo floor. And we're all over those carpeted stairs down at the at the Elks Lodge downtown, and I think they call it the Park Plaza Hotel now, but it was the Elks Lodge when we shot there. They shot Journey videos there, and I shot another or worked on another movie there called uh, Rockstar, which where we shot upstairs and we carried Technocranes up the stairs, and then oh, we did another thing for the for um. Well, I think it was LG, uh, 3D televisions and stuff, where we did a bunch of stuff in there too. So, it's a popular location down by down by MacArthur Park in Los Angeles. And, um, but I mean, I did all those things for 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 David. And then I did a couple movies for Quentin Tarantino. I did two for Joel Schumacher and two for Wes Craven. And then there's all kind of other movies and television shows and stuff. It it just all runs together in my mind. People will say, did you do that? And I just found one on IMDb the other day that I, or yesterday that I'd done and I forgot to put a credit in on it. So I had to add a credit yesterday for one from 15 years ago that I, because I'd done so many and I said, oh yeah, I worked on that one. I better stick my name on that one too. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, the whole opening of Jackie Brown was me with steady cams and dollies and stuff because I was a camera and steady cam operator on that. And, um, 
and then I did the steady came on grindhouse, the death proof segment of grindhouse with Quentin too. So, um, well, I saw and, uh, you at NAB and you were leaving to go on a shoot. Were you going to Africa? Where were you going when I saw you at NAB in April? Oh, in April, I was going down to Tucson to scout a cowboy movie that I'm supposed to do in November. Oh, okay. All right. And, and, and uh, cause I, I just come back from doing something else and then I'm, I'm, I've got a movie I'm supposed to shoot before November in, um, in a house that Albert Einstein used to live in, a beach house Albert Einstein used to live in. And so, um, and that's going to be sort of like a, a big chill with a haunted twisted end sort of thing. So that'll be fun. And um, it's not a dull life, you know. <laughs> it's a wonderful life. How do you manage yeah. to have, I mean, 24-7 sounds like with you. Um, well, it can be. You know, it depends. Like, beginning of this year has been a little slow, but then things are starting to pick up now, and it's probably going to be like a rat race all the way to the end, you know. But um, a happy rat race, though. You know, I'll have yeah. little happy rats running. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. So you made the, the switch from Steadicam to uh, being becoming a cinematographer DP. Do you, do you like that? Tell me about that world for you. I, I do like that. I'm... I'm 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 actually happier doing that than I did was as a Steadicam operator. I mean, I, we just had a, um, a a premiere of our movie about Mary Pickford and called "Why Not Choose Love," a Mary Pickford manifesto at the Ace Hotel downtown in the United Artists Theater that Mary designed, and we showed our Mary Pickford movie. And it's the hundredth anniversary of United Artists this year, which Mary founded. So that showing went really well. We had eight hundred people there, and. Um, it, it was it was fun for me because I got to make uh, modern day uh, Aria Lexus look like 1909 film cameras, and so that was a bit of a challenge. And we had really great performers. Jennifer D'Elia was the director. Um, uh, Sophie Kennedy Clark played Mary Pickford. Carrie always played D.W. Griffith. Luke Arnold played uh, Douglas Fairbanks. And we had Balthazar Getty in it, who I already knew from Lost Highway. And um, it, it turned out to be a really uh, interesting, good little film um, that that I got to pull out all the stops and make it. It doesn't look like any movie you've ever seen. Can it, we see it, it? Is it out somewhere where we can see it? Uh, we still got to do a few little things uh, mm-hmm. to it before they're going to um, release it, I think. And so what's what's going on is, we still got to do titles. I want to do one final color pass mm-hmm. and things like that. And But then, you know, it'll be, it should be out, I'm guessing, in the next year or so. You were talking about how it didn't look like any other movie I've ever seen. Can, can mm-hmm. you keep going there? Because I, 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 all of a sudden I'm going, oh, well, I want to see it. And I interrupted you. My mouth moves too fast sometimes. I apologize. <laughs> You know, I just, this is so fascinating. So you, you were starting to tell us what was different about this film. Well, it, 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 it doesn't look like any film you've ever seen. It, 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 the story is not like any other film you've ever seen. It, it all takes place in Mary Pickford's head and it the, the premise of it, which is, uh, sort of the background material is Mary Pickford was, um, offered Sunset Boulevard by Billy Wilder, who wrote the script for her. To, and and she turned it down, but and the part eventually went to Gloria Swanson. But um, our film, 
takes place in her mind from between between the time she gets the script and when she turns it down as she looks back through her life from 1909 to about 1949. Hmm. And it's it's a very very different film. It's a very beautiful film. Uh, The performances are amazing. Um, The direction's very good. Every, everything really kind of works with it, but it's, it's not like your conventional uh, movie. So it, it, I think it's, it's, it's worth seeing not only because it's a good film, but also because it's very different than anything you've ever seen before or ever will see again. So That's awesome. Yeah. So do you like directing? I, I've directed a few little things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm... In earlier in my life, I didn't think I had anything to say, but I think I'm finally getting to the point where I could have something to convey to other people, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I work with a lot of uh, first-time directors, and, and and I get to to help guide them uh, sometimes. You know, it's it's my my job is to serve the script and the director. Mm-hmm. That's the whole whole reason I'm there. You know, I'm 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 not there to take any glory for myself. I'm just there to help them make the movie that's in their head and to serve the script because the script is as, you know, I, I lectured a lot of universities and uh, I've teach, I've taught at AFI and, and places like that and, and university of South Carolina where I went to school and, and, um, I always say like the script, if you, my grandfather used to build houses on my mother's side and I always looked at the script, like the foundation of the house. Mm-hmm. If you got a bad foundation, your house is going to fall down, you know, but mm-hmm. if you've got a good, a good foundation or a good script, then you've got something to build upon to make that house and be a, a, a good sturdy house that'll last forever. But you have to be faithful to it and not try to like do too many modifications because the, the, the script itself tells you everything that movie needs to be. It's right there on the pages. You just look at it, you read it, you know exactly what you need to be doing. And um, so if, if you follow that and are faithful to that, and you and the director see eye to eye on what that should be, then you come out and you can make a very a lovely film. If you, if, if you and the director are not seeing eye to eye and button heads, it's, gonna, it's not going to be a very pleasant experience, and the film's not going to be very good. No, you're right. You're you right. Know, and, and so it's, it's, I mean, that, that being said, sometimes you get a bad script and, 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 um, and the right director and the right actors can save it. You know, we, we had a scene in school making chicken salad out of chicken shit, you know, and, <laughs> and, it, and so you'd have to, you, you take what you're given and you do the absolute best you can with that. And, um, and you, you go forward, you know, it's like, I mean, when they first gave me the, the script. <laughs> How do you shoot that? Blah. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Well, no, it's, it's, it's like, well, like a perfect example is they gave me the script for Scream, which when, when they gave me the script, it was called Scary Movie. That was the original name of the movie. And um, I read the script and I thought, oh, man, this is awful. You know, I don't, this is not a very good script. But, you know, other people disagreed. And, and the, that group of actors they brought in in Wes Craven, it turned out to be an, an amazing film. It's like one of the classic horror films of all time, you know, in the for 10 years, whenever they talked about horror films, they'd show the opening that I shot with Drew Barrymore, and it was like, 
for 10 years. I'm not kidding. Every time they talk about horror films, there was that, there were those shots. And so, um, the lesson to be learned from this is you got to treat every movie you work on like the Oscar winner. Cause you never know which one's going to do it. And you never know which one's going to strike it with the audience and, and with people and, 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 uh, the people involved, what they're going to do to make things actually a, a great film out of it. I mean, I've had directors tell me to do things uh, back when I was operating for them, or, and I, you know, I wouldn't understand, but I'd watch and I'd do it, and I'd do it with enthusiasm, of course, you know. But mm-hmm. and when I saw the film, I saw exactly why they wanted me to do that because they had something very specific in mind mm-hmm. that I wasn't really mm-hmm. grasping at, at, at that moment in time, and um, and so every time I read a script and, and think about it and watch the movie that I see, I always think of like, well, what would the director think about this? And, you know, mm-hmm. then we start the dialogue. I mean, when we did the Mary Pickford film, Jen, Jen and I started meeting eight months before we shot, shot the movie. We met and we started talking, we met for lunch and then we'd talk and then we'd look at pictures of Mary and we'd, we'd go and discuss and discuss and discuss for months. And then we brought in, uh, the 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 production designers and and the costumers and we sit down and say well if we did this and if we did this and if we did this we could have this effect and how do we want this scene to sell and blah 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 all these things and it's a, a luxury to be able to do that because then you can have time to really hone in on what you're trying to do because some films you get and you you come in like a week or two days before they want to roll cameras and they're saying, okay, we're going to shoot. And I'm like, okay, we're going to shoot. Sure. (laughs) You know, it's hard to be creative when you don't have any time to let your mind wander. Your mind has to wander. You have to, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to allow that. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Absolutely. So You, you need, you need time for that, the ideas to gel and things, but I mean, I'm good at from the news days. I'm good. I'm good at landing on my feet and shooting, you know? So, Mm -hmm. And the films that I've shot that way, they still look good. They still work. Um, it's 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 all these things are, are important though. So you, you, it just becomes a different movie if you if you do that approach to it than if you have time to really set it up. And Mary needed time to to, to for us to think it through and to gel it because we it's a it's a it's a very um, different approach with the art direction with the cost the costumes are amazing. The performances are amazing, and but it's it's and the you know we got some really incredible images that we wouldn't have done if we just jumped into it and just said okay shoot shoot it you know. Mm-hmm. But it's it's it's, it's a different. I, I think if you have a movie where you want a, a frantic feel to it and having a short prep time on it uh, may give you that. It, it, you won't be able to like think out long-term results on it but you some some movies they don't want that some some they just shoot it be done with it move on to the next one you know so i I tend to want to do interesting things though so uh, having a little time to think it over is is a bonus to me so dan you're an eternal optimist i love the way you take any situation and try to turn it into something positive i think that's wonderful what is the one thing you think the younger generation needs to hear from you that uh that you would want to say to them? There's a lot of kids out there with iPhones, with the DSLRs. Uh, you know, they can't afford or even don't want some of the larger cameras that we grew up with. 
what do, what do you tell them about what's important uh, to take with them well, so that they can have their story come to life? Don't try to start at the top. Get, mm-hmm. get in with a camera to get in with a camera department or whatever department you want to be with. Work with people that are better than you are, and learn. Because if you start at the top, you're robbing yourself of a foundation of really great knowledge that that um, that you can you can learn from others. I mean, I started out in South Carolina, and we might do a job as a loader, or an operator, or a DP, or whatever. But I've done all the jobs in the camera department. Mm-hmm. And but but the other thing is, is I've worked under some amazing directors and amazing camera people. And I keep my. I have a theory that I call eyes open, mouth shut. And um, <laughs> that's awesome. Which is, I mean, it, it, what that is is, if you see somebody doing something, watch them and try to figure out what they're doing, rather than asking them what they're doing. Because if you watch them and and figure out what they're doing and say, "Oh, that's why they're doing that," you'll remember that forever. Mm-hmm. But if you ask them a question and they say, oh, I just do this because of that, you'll forget it. And it's not ingrained in your brain. And the, one of the things in this business is you want to take um, the knowledge that you learn and, the, and the, the, the things that you see and file them away. So when you go and do another film, you won't have the exact same situations, but you'll be able to say, oh, well, in this film we did this and this worked that way. If I modify that here, um, I should get a result similar to this. And you can you can you can draw upon all that knowledge that you've saved up over the years. And um, you know, I just realized it's been uh, since the news days. I've been doing this for forty years, hmm. and there's a lot of knowledge in that. I mean, I, I worked with Alan Davio, Alex Thompson, uh, Uli Steiger. You know, all these wonderful cameramen. And uh, uh, Roy Wagner, uh, Bob Primes, just amazing, amazing amounts of knowledge just to work with these people and have them say, you know, well, you know, if you did it this way, it might be better and this would be better and this would help you. And if you do this way, you will run into trouble with this. And these are things that you file away rather than having to learn it all over again and start at square one. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's always it's always good to to listen to your your elders and to um, learn from them because they've been through the wars, and you know that that's that's really always very important. I'm sure there are times when you give a commitment and then somebody that you care about very much calls you and you can't do it. That's really hard, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, Spike Jones and 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 Michael Bay and uh, Chivo, the, all these guys. When I was really busy, they were like, oh, can you come do this? And, and or they'd have their people call me, and I'm like, I, I can't wedge it in. I can't fit it in there. I was so busy that I, I, I just didn't, I, I, I just couldn't work at everybody I wanted to, you know. And, and you know, it, it, in a way it pains you, but I think you get the jobs you're meant to have and that other people are, get the jobs they're supposed to have. And, and if, if, if you get a job that, that – where they really wanted somebody else and they hired you and then it, it's never a comfortable situation. And, and my, my, um, my thoughts on that are, you know, you should hire who you want, you know, don't hire me because of whatever reason, go hire the people that you want to hire and use them. And then you'll be happy and I'll be happy and I'll go work with other people that, that, that thought of me and, and rather than like just filling a hole or a void, you know? So mm-hmm. it's, 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 
because you know I get along with everybody, but you know it's 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 like some people are determined not to get along with anybody. <laughs> yeah. and, um, there are a lot of interesting characters in our business. I want to take yeah. a, a slight detour, but I, I want to talk to you. I can't talk to someone like you without bringing up the subject of light. Um, obviously, we have story. We have, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about technology in a minute, but light. Isn't it all about light? Well, we're, we're as, as, as John Alton said in his book, we're painting with light. So it's, 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 uh, but it's, I mean, making a movie is very simple. If you put the camera in the right place with the right lens on it, you put the lights in the right place, you put the mark in the right place, you put the actor on the mark and you roll the camera and you got a movie, but it's taken me 40 years to figure out what the right place is. There you go. You know, it, you know, that's the, that's, I watched so many student films and, and, and films by people that are, are, you know, try to start out at the top and stuff, and the camera's in the wrong place. And I'm like, you know, that's kind of... But, you know, I've had it pounded into my head how to do an over, how to do a single, how to do a wide shot, and how to do... You know, it's, it's like... This this is stuff you learn with experience and by working with people that are better than you are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, to this day, my hiring practice is to find people that are better than I am and let them do their jobs when they're, they're on my crew, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't try to be a micromanager... And, um, because I've been micromanaged and I know what it feels like and other people might have a better idea than you do. That's one of the biggest mistakes if you're a leader is to, is to think that you have all the ideas and nobody else has any. So it's, that's, that's a really, really important thing to remember. So when you're working as a DP, uh, you have to find camera people that you really trust too. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've had the same focus puller for 30 years. Wow. That's awesome. Stephen Mann, yeah, he's been my focus. He pulled focus on Glory when they won the Oscar. He was the lead focus puller on Glory when they won the Oscar. And then since I've been in Los Angeles, he's been my main focus puller on all my Steadicam work, except for some of the David Lynch stuff, which Scott Ressler, who is now a professor at the North Carolina School of Arts, teaching cinematography there, he was a focus puller for me many times. And then on Mary Pickford, I had Steve pull in focus, and Scott came in and operated some of the the extra camera stuff. My main two camera operators were Dan Gold and Mitch Dubin. And Dan did all the spy- Spider-Man and unknown movies. And Mitch did the last 15 Spielberg movies. So it's like, if I have talent like that around me and my, my gaffer's Dwight Campbell, who gaffed always and, and, and far and away and the abyss. And you, you surround yourself by these talented people and you let them do what they know how to do. That's very important, and it, it because I mean I I've gone into jobs and movies where I had to do everything because I had crews that were put upon me and it's and not saying that they were bad but it's like I'd have to like tell them everything and watch them and 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 things but when you have a great group of people surrounding you you just let them do their jobs. And then you, you make suggestions, and I'll watch everything on monitors. I'll be just adjusting filtration. I'll be adjusting lenses. I'll be saying stops and and focal lengths and camera positions and everything. I'll, I'll control that via radios and stuff through monitors. But um, but a lot of times it's, 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 just, um, it's just you let people do what they do. Mm-hmm. 
And that's why you've won so many awards too, because people love what you do, and and uh, you you're just you've had an amazing career. How has technology challenged you? Because things have really changed since that first Super 8 camera that your mom had to now, where you know you could be shooting on just about any kind of camera, but the analog to digital was a huge jump, and everything in between. You seem like the kind of person that adapts easily or was it hard for you it's 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 i i I try to stay on top of all the latest stuff or a lot of it you know but now now it's coming through at like an astronomical rate so it's like it's almost overwhelming in in a way but you have to still learn a little bit about each one of these things and what might be the best way to do it but again it comes back to the it's not the size of the wrench it's the person behind the wrench Mm -hmm. You, you can make a great movie, and as they told us, in, in, when I went to the Univers- University of Southern California and studied cinema there as well, and when, when they told us, they said, you can make an absolute great movie in Super 8 or a home movie in Super Panavision 70. It's, <laughs> it's, not, yeah, it's not the thing that you capture it with. Um, it's the story. It's the script. It's the actors. Now, there are a lot of people that would argue that fact, but... You, you, there, there's a movie called Celebration that was shot on a palm quarter and it got distrib- distributed. Uh, David Lynch shot in on the Empire on a PD-150 because he could let Laura Dern act for an hour and he had a, 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 a one-hour set and he didn't have to cut her and he could just let her run. And he loved to be able to do that. This isn't really a, an interview about gear, but I, I would like to ask you about perhaps your favorite lenses or some of your favorite tools that, given the mm-hmm. chance, you like to work with. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 well, yeah, the, the lenses and cameras and, and different tools that I like to work with. Um, I mean, my favorite camera uh, now, and it has been for a while, is the Airflex Alexa. And I usually put either Zeiss Super Speeds on it or... Um, in case of Mary Pickford, we use Panavision Ultra Speeds. Um, I mean, there's a the, right now. There's a, a a renaissance in glass coming out. When when the digital cameras first came out, there weren't that many lenses around, and so we're having like a flood of new lenses from all different sources come in now, which is really great for us because we have a lot of different things to choose from. Um, but uh, I still like the older glass um, now because you, you, the, some of the new stuff is just too friggin' sharp, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and, and when it is sharp, the the it's razor sharp in one plane, and then it, they're not very forgiving; they fall out really quick. And it's not like the depth of field thing; it's like it's it's uh, razor sharpness and then uh, not so sharp. So. Um, Whereas the other lenses that, I, that I, the older lenses I use, they tend to roll into they they roll into um, into focus over uh, they slowly roll into focus and then they slowly roll out, and they're more forgiving. The, the older lenses, what, what happens with with older lenses is is they're more forgiving focus wise. They don't go, they don't have just like one plane that's super sharp and everything else is falling off. They 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 roll into um, a an area of focus. And they roll back out. The they never quite get as sharp as some of the the new lenses. They're they're a little bit softer. But on digital cameras, I find that that is more interesting to me 
because the digital sensors tend to get clinical sometimes mm-hmm. and, and, and get very sterile. And so I want things to, to work with them to, to kind of take that digital edge off of whereas film kind of did it on its own. And, um, with the, with the film, with a digital camera, the sensor is in one place. It doesn't move. All the color pixels are on the same plane. And with film, you had three layers and the film was always moving in the gate, flopping around. So that took, it took out a lot of, um, a lot of ills with film because the, the lenses would shoot further into the motion for different wavelengths of light. And the, the, the film itself was moving back and forth in the gate. So that gave you a little extra leeway. Um, when digital first came out, we, for focus pullers, we always kind of looked at it like it was a widow maker because you, it was really difficult until people got used to it to pull focus on digital cameras because mm-hmm. the film it's forgiving in a way. And, um, so, you know, the, the cameras I like right now, the area Alexa and the little cannons pretty much, the, those are the ones that, like the C200 is really a nice Canon camera. And I'm hearing really good things about the Sony Venice. That seems to be nice. I just haven't shot anything with it yet. Um, the Panasonic LT, Vericam LT, I'd liked a lot. Um, there are a lot of different cameras out there now. A lot of people can make a, a decent sensor now. Um, but it's just the way that um, the, the lens combination and then the color science behind that sensor really make them whether they work well or not. And um, so that's kind of tricky stuff. Again, it's, it's, you need a way to capture that image. You need a way to, um, w- with the sensor and with the lenses. And then with digital cameras, a lot of times you don't find yourself using 85s or, or color correcting filters, but you find uh, diffusions are kind of important. So, and then what kind type of diffusion you use and where you put it, and um, other things like that. And then the other thing to remember is that once the cameras stop rolling, the director of photography's job is only halfway done. The other half of the job we got to do is the color correction. So you go in and do a DI after the fact, and that's where you do the other half of your, your direct photography work or your DP work is you go in and you take all this footage that you've captured and then you finally hone in the color and, and, and what you see and what, if there's anything that's been overexposed that you couldn't handle on the set. Um, these things are all very important, to, too. So in the theater, in the DS suite, usually the best way to do it is you, is you go into a place that has a big screen, like a 25-foot screen with a, with a calibrated projector, usually a Barco or some other really high-end $100,000 projector that's been calibrated to be color accurate. And you sit there with the colorist and you go through the movie shot by shot and you say, okay, this shot's a little too green. This shot's a little too red. Uh, this one, we could sharpen it up a little bit if we needed to or not, or, or, or there's a big overexposure. What can we do with that? Or can we bring up the, you know, crush the blacks here or what, whatever, whatever you want to do to, for the image that you're trying to get. And, um, and then, um, you finally do your output and then make DIs and, and or make your, your uh, DCP for projection or your ProRes or however you're going to output the movie. And But that's the other half of your job. And a lot of times uh, people don't realize this and they try to lock you out of the color suite, which is really Ooh. to their disadvantage. Ooh, that would you know. be tragic. Well, it, it happens, you know. It happens like everybody, 
the, the thing that we're trying to avoid right now is that director of photography is being looked at as data gatherers and not artists. And um, it kind of started with with sound and, and Pro Tools. Is is the um, people were recording Pro Tools, and then they have a certain uh, engineer that we record the main session, and then they'd go to, do, to change it, and they say, "Well, we don't need you anymore. We got your numbers," you know. So, and, and that's but sad. There's certain things. <laughs> well, yeah, and it, it is sad, but there's there's certain ways I shoot things that I know that if if I don't get to go in there and color them, they're not going to look good because. I'll take the camera down in the basement, you know, and, and right where it, it, you know, where it barely hangs on there. And um, so if you try to print it up too much, it's going to turn into noise and icky colors and that kind of stuff. So there's there's a lot of things by design, that, that the way that you want things to look mm-hmm. and the way the script needs. Again, you come back to the script. The script requires this photography and it needs to be... Uh, in this in this way i think you're talking about the creative process and taking it from start to finish and working with the team for anyone mm-hmm. on the creative side to be shut out of the final process is really difficult well i mean i i just i just hope to keep making great films i mean i i you know i i go to i go to europe or go to museums or travel the world and see different environments a lot of times on somebody else's dime and um, that to me is wonderful because you're always having constant input into your mind as to what you could take and how you can manipulate that into something that you can use on a film or, or just something to give you joy in life. Um, that, that's, that's really one of, the, one of the main things for me. And to, um, to just have constant curiosity mm-hmm. and const, constant uh, joy. I think you'll have it. I wish that for you. I wish that it continues well into the future. I I can't thank you enough for the time today, and I think that what you're talking about is going to be very inspiring to both the young filmmakers starting out and the people who've been around for a long time. We need more people like you in the business, Dan. So um, thanks for your time and your generosity, and I hope that we get to talk again soon. I'd like to actually do another interview with you down the road, perhaps on camera about the technology and the cameras and the lenses and sound and all of, all of those aspects of the, the, uh, the hardware side of what you do. That might be fun. But in the meantime, thanks for sharing your big heart with us. And, and um, I'd like to say this is Serena Catania, and I'm signing off from OWC Radio and thanking Dan Neese. And do you want people to go to danneese.com? Where do you want them to go on the Internet to learn more about you? Uh, well, they can go to danneese.com or they can go to my, my put my name, D-A-N-K-N-E-E-C-E, into IMDB. And that'll have a lot of the different credits and um, things, a waste. I think there's a way to reach me there. Um, but uh, you can certainly do it through my website or on Facebook as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dan. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And remember what I always tell you, get up off that chair and go do something wonderful today. Have a great day. <laughs>